0: Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer whenever I want? Can, Can we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that, cools up to eight times faster, and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Your package has shipped, but it's still three days out. Three days of traversing through weather to get to you. Will storms cause a delay? Does the product need refrigeration? Can the product be left in the cold? What if the answers to these questions started before they order everyone out for shipping? Taking the weather forecast into account, charting and changing the way your package gets delivered. It could mean big savings for you and companies. This technology exists, and I'm here talking with Stephen Bennett, founder and chief operating officer for Risk Pulse. Stephen, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, Yeah, I think our listeners would benefit from just a 101 of what Risk Pulse is.
1: Sure. So we are a supply chain analytics company, or that's one of the things that we do and one of the main products that we provide is a software package and consulting services for companies that run large supply chains. So the best example of that is a food or beverage product that is shelf stable, but temperature sensitive. So what does that mean? If you think about a a product like mayonnaise, uh, mayonnaise doesn't have to be refrigerated all the time, but there is a certain temperature range that it needs to stay inside. It needs to stay generally above freezing because frozen mayonnaise is a bad thing, and it can't get too hot because it will spoil and the, the, uh, the actual mayonnaise will separate. So we work with companies who make mayonnaise, who ship mayonnaise uh, nationally, and we work with other companies that ship product around the world, and we help them optimize around the weather. So, if the temperature outside is, a, um, is within that stable range, then the uh, company that makes the mayonnaise and ships it doesn't necessarily need to put it into a refrigerated truck, and a refrigerated truck costs more than an unrefrigerated truck. So, we work with companies to basically look at everything they ship, every mile they ship, uh, every minute that something is on the road, and help them determine uh, the best
0: way to to run their supply chain. That is so interesting. And people that know me well and personally will find the irony in your uh, choice of using mayonnaise as your example, because I despise <laughs> mayonnaise. <laughs> it's, it's actually the worst thing on the planet to me ever. But uh, it did a you did a nice job of sort of using it within the context of, 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 of describing the supply chain. I want to dive deeply into the sort of nuances and details of your company and how it works in this supply chain product uh, process. I think the listeners are going to be fascinated, but before we do that, I want to back out and learn a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you sort of founded or came up with this idea for your company, and and sort of what your sort of academic or scholarly um, background is
1: Sure, I, I can tell you that if you had told me. In the mid-90s, as I was sitting in synoptic meteorology in Mobile, Alabama.
0: Oh, South Alabama.
1: My, South Alabama. That I'm actually the, uh, the first meteorology graduate from South Alabama sh-
0: Shout out to the South Alabama meteorology program. I actually spoke there, I guess, a couple of years ago at a big weather conference that they host down there. Had a good time and enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it was fun back then. It still is, I'm sure. Um, the The thing for me... The thing that drove me to South Alabama was uh, actually the Coastal Weather Research Center down there, the ability to actually work as a meteorologist while going to school. Uh, And I think if you had told me at that point that my career a few decades later would involve mayonnaise (laughs) and the other major commodity that we uh, work with that we like to talk about is beer... So, beer and mayonnaise are the two big commodities that, uh, that I like to tell people that I work with regularly. I would not have guessed that sitting in synoptic meteorology so many years ago.
0: Well, you know, that's interesting. So, I, I wasn't sure. I, I, I know we're going to have sort of a dual sort of notion of talking with your 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 risk pulse over the course of the weather geeks of the year here. And so I've talked to a colleague of yours and I knew he was a meteorologist, but I didn't realize you also had a background in meteorology as well. You know, it's interesting because as someone that came through Florida State University meteorology and and now direct the program at the University of Georgia, uh, you really, when you talk about mayonnaise and beer and supply chain. I don't think that a lot of meteorology majors perhaps think about the sort of pathway that you took. I mean, what what was the sort of sort of spurring along of that? What sort of stimulated you to go that route?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's it's a long and winding road. So, when I came out with my undergraduate degree from South Alabama, uh, I sort of took a pretty traditional weather forecasting route. So I, I went to work for at the time the the company was Weather Data um, that was in Wichita. I think they they're now part of AccuWeather. Uh, I was there for a while doing newspaper. Uh, that pretty much that's what I did at Weather Data. Was was we designed and developed newspaper weather pages for newspapers around the country. Um, from there, I went to Boston uh, for weather to Weather Services Corporation, and there I did radio. So I did uh, we did radio weather reports for stations all over the country. It was all white labeled, so we were not actually in the studio. You know, we weren't. We were obviously doing reports all around the country, but. Unlike a company like AccuWeather, we didn't have a brand that went with it. So we we actually, um, we, we, it was as if we were in the studio with them. So I would literally go from talking about the weather at the state fair in Montana to in the very next half, 30 seconds talking about the weather uh, in New York City, essentially. Um, and so that was, that was interesting. That was a fun job. Um, from there, I went back to Atlanta and worked for the Weather Channel uh, behind the scenes. Uh, so I was doing... Animated weather graphics was where that was the position that I was in when I got a phone call from a company I had never heard of in Houston, Texas, that basically said, "Hey, we uh, we're calling because we we hear you're a pretty good meteorologist, and we're looking for meteorologists. And would you have any interest in in thinking about a different job?" And um, I was like, "Well, I'm working at the Weather Channel. Why would why would I ever want a different job? This is great. Right? I was having a great time at the Weather Channel." Um, and the uh, they they basically said, well, why don't you come check it out? Uh, so I went down to Houston for an interview, and it was an interview for an energy trading uh, company that was looking for meteorologists to come join their natural gas trading floor. And it was that was a really tough decision for me at the time because I was really enjoying um, I was really enjoying sort of telling the weather story uh, at the Weather Channel, putting together an animated graphic that then would be shown later on air, and working with the on camera meteorologists. To figure out what the big story of the day was, and to put together an explainer and all of that kind of stuff, and at the end of the day, I basically decided that there was a there was a chance to try something in a whole different direction. Um, and I saw what was going on at the company in Houston um, on the on the trading floor, where it was a very similar sort of job. It was talking to traders about the weather story of the day, helping them understand what the supply demand balance would be as driven by weather. And we had a team, there were actually four of us who were all meteorologists, who all just worked for natural gas. Um, So I I made that move. Um, I left the Weather Channel and and went down to Houston. The company that I went to work for was actually Enron. um, And I was at Enron during the period where Enron was in the headlines, so. Yes, and so uh, let
0: me just set that up. Yeah, Enron was an energy company. Uh, many of our younger listeners may not be familiar with some aspects of uh, the, the company, but yeah, it, it made headlines from, and I honestly don't remember all the details of it. It's really not that, that sort of relevant to our discussion here, but uh, I, I also remember as a young scientist at NASA getting a call uh, from a headhunter about Enron and Aquila energy, and sort of, uh, I think it was during a similar time where they were really stocking up building up their meteorology portfolio. So uh, the fact that you're sort of bringing this up and I didn't realize it was a part of your history kind of brings back some of my own thoughts about this as well.
1: Yeah, it was this was during the it was the early 2000s um, and the energy market had recently deregulated. And so the um, there were a number of, of firms that were purely uh, looking at futures and financial trading And much the way the agricultural commodities had been done in the years prior, uh, the energy traders were realizing that if they had just a slightly better view of what the weather was going to be, they could get a slightly better view of what the price of the commodity was going to do. So it was a time where there were literally, I mean, there were dozens and dozens of meteorologists being hired into financial firms that were trading energy at the time.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that era well. And I think it actually, in some ways, was a very important era because it really expanded the notion of where meteorology and our influence can be. And I think your company, Risk Pulse, also does that. I want to shift gears now. I want to read something and then let you react to it. I want to read something about one of your products. Uh, it's, It's pulled from your website, I believe. And it's talking about Risk Pulse Sunrise, which scans your open shipments up to 10 days before tender for potential risk. These risks include inclement weather, extreme temperatures, social hazards, natural disaster impact zones, and infrastructure outages. Is this Risk Pulse Sunrise kind of your core product? And if it is, and even if it's not, tell us a little bit about it.
1: No, it is. Um, so it is the core technology that we work with, and the best way to the best way to think about what we do for the supply chain is to think about the various nodes that that work from the man. There are sort of two ends of the supply chain. I'm going to talk mostly about what I call the downstream. Part of the supply chain, which is really starting at the manufacturer, so it's the it's the beer brewery, or it is the the plant where the mayonnaise is made, and it starts there and it ends on a grocery store shelf somewhere. So, what we're doing is we we provide a weather assessment at every step of the line. So, if you think about starting at the brewery, for instance, um, there are certain elements of the weather, weather that are very traditional. I mean, this is the, these are things that our industry has thought about for a long time. It, it's about property and safety. So it's about knowing um, what the safety precautions need to be for people working outside who might be loading the mayonnaise or the beer onto a truck, right? So if there's a major snowstorm coming or if it's extremely cold outside, um, you need to change the operations for loading the vehicles, uh, so that the um, the product is not exposed to extreme cold. A lot of these places will have heaters um, or they will keep inventory inside for a period of time before it gets on the truck. So we start there and that's sort of a, a classic business continuity uh, form of solution. And, and our software package Sunrise will work with the location of that particular brewery and then map the conditions, only the conditions that are important for that location. So... I'm one of the only meteorologists that you will meet that says nobody cares about the weather, really. Um, and I know that's <laughs> not true, especially not for listeners of this podcast.
0: Sure, no,
1: uh, But, but, what, but do you, what
0: do you mean by that, though? Dig, dig w- deeper. What
1: I mean by that is that um, most people care about what they have to do because of the weather. Yes. So often if you communicate it's going to be sunny in 75, a lot of people may not care because they don't need to do anything differently. And especially if you're if you're one of our clients... And you're loading a truck full of beer if it's sunny in 75 that is operation as usual right you you don't need any special precautions now if it's if it's snowing in 15 you probably actually want to do something a little differently so the way we've um created our software on the business continuity side is that we take the factors that the that the company cares about for loading so if it's sunny in 75 our risk index is going to be as low as possible. So we run a risk index that's from one to 25, where 25 means that our customers are taking precautionary action. They're doing something differently than they would do on a normal day because of the weather. So if it's sunny and 75, your risk score is one, and it's normal operation. If it's you know, a foot of snow and five degrees outside, The risk score is most likely a 20 or a 25. And what that means is you have more people on staff. Uh, You're rotating the inventory so that it's going through warm places before it gets on a truck. Um, So that's a pretty classic business continuity uh, um, instance. We go from there into transportation. So the next thing that happens to that can of beer or the jar of mayonnaise is it gets on a truck or a train, and it moves somewhere else. So the next layer that we provide in, the, in, the, in our software package is beginning to follow that inventory from the minute it leaves the brewery or it leaves the manufacturing plant uh, on whatever vehicle it's on down the route, so down the rail or down the road. Uh, and we are looking at supply chain continuity. So there we're looking at is that, um, the risks were maybe driven by, is that shipment going to go through an area where it's going to have to stop because it's flooded, or there's a hurricane in the area, or it's a snowstorm. Um, so again, a, co- a continuity of goods, moving the goods. But then what we're also looking at are the sensitivities of the goods themselves. And so this is where the temperature comes to play for temperature-sensitive shipments. Uh, and so for, for the temperature-sensitive shipments, we actually have to start that planning before it ever gets on the truck. Because we'll work with the shipper to help them understand what type of truck it should get on or whether it should use a thermal blanket, which is basically just an insulation uh, insulation for the container that it's in so that it prevents it from freezing or getting too hot in transit. And then we'll model that all the way down to the other end. So the, um, the truck or the train will oftentimes will stop somewhere along the way. Um, so if it's a train, you have to move to a hub where it gets off of a truck and gets onto a train and then it gets off of a train and onto a truck. So that's a particularly sensitive zone where things can get backed up or where the temperature can be particularly sensitive or problematic, and then it moves from there. Often it moves from there to a distribution center, to a warehouse, essentially. Then it moves again from the warehouse to the retail shelf. Right. Um, So basically what we are doing is we're following that inventory from um, from its conception or from where it's manufactured. Uh, all the way through to the point where it ends up on a store shelf. And we're looking at things like, uh, you know, whether the manufacturing plant needs to change operation, whether a route may need to change to avoid some inclement, weather, uh, where the, the timing may be important for the customer, whoever's receiving the good, as well as the protection, making sure it's on the right type of truck or train all along the way. So, it all boils back to our risk score And we do that for a location, a lane, which is just a road or a rail, and for a shipment itself, which is the actual, then you intersect with time. So you're looking at where the load is at every instance along the way.
0: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Stephen Bennett, founder and chief operating officer at Risk Pulse. And he's a meteorologist, so uh, welcome to Weather Geeks. And we're talking about the Risk Pulse Sunrise uh, software and supply chain software with a weather connection. And I think that you just heard a really interesting sort of perspective on it. A couple of questions come to mind as I was listening to you. One, I mean, how does tracking... A product uh, in that manner and giving it a risk score and flagging the number of miles and sending out alerts if a freeze protection or some other weather hazard is needed. How does that translate into savings for a company?
1: So, there, there are sort of two main value propositions. Um, to answer your question directly on savings, the average difference between a refrigerated truck and a truck that's not refrigerated is about $1,000. And if, you are a, um, if you're a major shipper, you're probably running, you know, for a commodity like beer alone, you may be running ten to 15,000 shipments per week on average uh, across the year. So there are times of year where you need to spend that $1,000 to protect that, those loads as they go to protect them from freezing. There are times of year where you, where you don't. So optimizing across that can be a multimillion-dollar savings for a large shipper. Uh, so as we think about cost optimization, that's one element. There's a second sort of optimization that's a lot harder to draw direct value to, but it's often more important, which is we also work with um, the companies that move the goods themselves. So I've talked a lot about sort of beer and mayonnaise, but what happens is the manufacturer may actually... Um, contract with another company to move the goods so it could be that the company that owns the trucks is not the same as the company that makes the mayo Uh, so those companies work on a customer service model right so they the people that they're delivering to uh, want to know what time the goods are going to show up and if you are delivering to somewhere like a walmart location the time windows for delivery are set to be they can be as short as 15 minutes so you may be delivering something from a warehouse that is 500 miles from the store and you have a 15-minute window that you need to arrive at the store. And if you're not there, if you're there early or if you're there late, there are often financial penalties for that. Um, so part of it's customer service. So it's helping the the stores know when the goods are going to arrive, making sure that the shelves are fully stocked when they need to be. So think about a hurricane or something along those lines. The... Um, the, whole, the wholesalers, the, the people that put food on the shelves, want to make sure that there is plenty of food on the shelf ahead of that snowstorm or ahead of that um, hurricane. The trucking companies also need to know that they're going to have more inventory moving during those periods. And the trucking companies want to get their trucks out of those areas before the storm gets there, right, so that they don't get trapped in the zone. Um, so, there are some direct value propositions, and then there are some more relationship-oriented uh, values.
0: Yeah, no, that all that all makes plenty of sense. And uh, we're talking with Stephen Bennett of of Risk Pulse, and what an interesting idea! What an interesting concept! Did, did, is this something that I mean, you came up with uh, individually, or in partnership, or something that you'd seen and said, "Hey, I can apply that in a different manner." Just, I mean, I'm just curious how how this originated
1: yeah it's a great question um so i I certainly can't take total credit for it there's you know there's a team of folks that uh that came up with this but it really was an evolution of thought so um after i worked for enron um, and i was i was there when the company uh, became infamous uh you know a lot of us had to move on we were forced to move to different companies i moved to a hedge fund in chicago um continuing to do commodities from there, I, I was exposed to insurance, uh, so weather's impact on insurance and reinsurance, as well as commodities, as well as weather derivatives. And from there, I, I had an interesting opportunity to meet the, um, uh, the dean and the, cha- and the um, vice chancellor at UC San Diego Scripps that was looking for a way to better connect the research sector with the private sector. And so I through a long course of conversations. It was about a year, year and a half that we actually talked. They created a position and encouraged me to come out to San Diego, which is not a tough move. From no, no, that's so a tough. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and basically start a program that the whole purpose for our program was to um, help the research sector connect to the private sector. And where we started, because it was my background, was in um, long-range temperature prediction. So, we worked with a team of research scientists um, to develop what started as a purely statistical model. Today, it's sort of a blended statistical dynamic. We we bring in the dynamic models, and we add a statistical model to it. So, you're bringing Um, in,
0: like, the GFSs or WARFs and Euro-type models? That's right.
1: So And what we're doing is we're looking at forecasting beyond the two-week window, Um, So, we're using the longer range uh, from the CFS and from the ECMWF combined with a statistical approach, which is basically just looking at – it's an enormous – Almanac of of weather conditions at all different levels. So, two hundred millibars, five hundred millibars, eight fifty. We developed a. um, We we basically look at the most common patterns. This sounds to me like a. This
0: sounds to me, and I don't know if it's exactly what it sounds a little to me like a Bayesian type approach. That's a very fancy word that many of us use. Is it it Bayesian type?
1: It is exactly. No, that's you're dead on. (laughs) That is exactly it. Um, So we do use Bayesian methods. Uh, in the statistical model. And then what we've done is we've trained the statistical model along with the dynamic model so that there's a constant reweighting, essentially. So, all of this was developed in conjunction with scripts at the start. And we started a company that spun out of UC San Diego, where we basically provided this model back to commodities traders. And through the course of that, we, um, we met another, so the, the name of the company that we formed there was called Earth Risk Technologies. And in 2015, my co-founder and I met the founders of a company called Stormpulse, which was a hurricane tracking application. It was a consumer app, essentially. It uh, started out free, and then they, they started charging, you know, uh, $9 a month. And then what they found was, what they had developed was a fantastic sort of uh, it was a it was an easy to use, beautiful application. And what they found was that the people that were signing up for this had email addresses like at bp.com or at generalmills.com, or you know at anheuserbusch.com. And so what StormPulse was realizing was they had a, a different group of users than they expected. They were really expecting, you know, just sort of the average average people to come there looking for hurricane information. So, my co founder and I met the founders of that company around the time they were having this realization. And Earthrisk had a very deep science um, background, whereas Stormpult had a deep application uh, background and a computer science background. And so, in 2015, the companies came together. And that was really the birth of the supply chain. Movement, but and it was really customers that took us there because it was what we were seeing. As we reached out to the to the um, people that were signing up and saying, "Hey, you know what? What exactly are you doing with uh, with our application?" And they started to educate us about how the supply chain worked. And the more we understood what they were doing, the more we understood how we could bring the deep science that we had developed at the university and the software that we had put together. Uh, and the people that we had put together to address that need more and more and more. Um, so it really was kind of an evolution of the market telling us what it needed. I think the supply chain is also undergoing a pretty dramatic revolution right now. So I think we're we're at a time where supply chain managers it used to be it, it used to be that it was just always done a certain way. So, you know, the rule of thumb was, hey, every October 1st, we're going to start putting temperature protection on everything we ship because, well, it's winter and things get cold. Um, I think what's happened over the last five to ten years, and we're sort of about the middle of it, I think, is a new generation of transportation planners are coming in, and they are understanding that the, number one, weather forecasts have gotten a lot better than they were 20 years ago. Number two, the data is so rich and there's such a high density of data now that can be tapped into, and they have been storing data. So they've been keeping their own records in a digital way for many, many years now. And they're beginning to say, hey, we can actually begin to merge some of these things together to put together processes that, um, that really help us optimize. And I think that, Knowledge has been dawning on the supply chain industry over the last probably last five years. The winter of thirteen fourteen was the winter that uh, really threw the supply chain into a into a uh, significant. There was a lot of lost goods that year, and and that's where I think a lot of folks said, "Hey, we can do better than this." And so we were very fortunate in that we were sort of there at that time with those people. And one of the things that we do. Uniquely is work specifically with our customers' uh, data and information. So we're fully integrated with their transportation systems. So we know when a truck is leaving. We know where it's going. We know when it's scheduled to arrive, which is all very, very necessary if you're going to do a full weather overlay, essentially, on it. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Stephen Bennett. He's the founder and chief operating officer at Risk Pulse. What a fascinating conversation we're having so far about the sort of intersection of weather and supply chain. And uh, it, it's just really illustrating a couple of things for me, this notion of how essential weather information is to supply chain, the business world, the gross domestic product, et cetera. Something else you also said that is important, our weather forecasts have gotten a lot better than they were 20 years ago, because there's this myth that propagates out there, Steve, and you know it, that weather forecasts are inaccurate or that meteorologists are always wrong. But in fact, the data is quite good and the forecasts are are good, and they're, they're good enough to make decisions that have business... Implications. So I think you established that. And then another thing that I've, I'm, I'm seeing from talking to you is that your private sector venture really emerged from some ideas in the academic sector, at least some activity in the academic sector as a professor at a university. I, I'm always trying to tell people how universities in the scholarly and academic world are engines of innovation and entrepreneurship. So I, I feel like what you've done here is a, a good model for that.
1: No, I think you're right. I mean, we we are absolutely a, a model for that, and that we're that's really where we were born from. So it was a it would the the vision at UCSD at Scripps started with the vice chancellor who said we 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 want to be a birthplace for things, and you know at Scripps they are a birthplace and always have been for a lot of things, uh, but specifically what he was saying was we want to to better seed commercial ventures. And so with that, they, they started a program there that was specifically aimed at doing that, connecting with the business school. So there was a connection with the, the Rady School of Management there at UC San Diego and then also a connection with the engineering school. And there was a program sort of put around uh, entrepreneurship and Earthrise Technologies spun out of that program. Uh, along with a number of other ventures um, and, you know, still coming out today. So I think I, you're absolutely right in that the, um, the academic sector uh, knows more about most of the things that affect the commercial sector than the commercial sector does. Um, so if you can make that connection where the deep knowledge is seeding uh, ventures that come out to try to optimize or... Um, or commercialize, I think that really is kind of the best that I mean, that's the best way to get knowledge into the world. And I worked with so many scientists when I was at UCSD um, who you know, they they sure they they were interested in the the commercial application, but really what they wanted is they wanted their ideas to get out into the world and for for them to help people do things. Um, in many cases the, you know, they they didn't they cared a lot less about the actual commercial activity And just more that it was actually um, applied and in the real world and
0: working. Yeah, no, that's a a great testament, sort of these incubator efforts at at universities. I want to weather geek out now. This is weather geeks and we like to geek out. So I want to shift the discussion now to a little bit about the sort of nuts and bolts of your activity and weather. I mean, for example, one question that comes to mind is how much is what you do sort of model computer based versus human forecaster based? Or is it a combination that is a great question?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and this has changed a lot, I think, over the last 10 years. So I would say a lot of what we do today is computer-based. Uh, in fact, we, we try very hard. We, one of the things that we talk about a lot on our team is leveraging our meteorologists, our humans, to do the things that a computer cannot do or can do a lot better than a computer can do. So what that typically means for us is we use our um, our meteorologists, and we actually will use the term, uh, we, we use the term customer success scientist, which is sort of an odd term, but the idea here is our meteorologists are really the a, a um, they're a translation layer. They're a relationship layer. They understand what our customers do And they help our customers understand what the computers are telling them, essentially. Um, The forecasts themselves, we certainly do focus on large event forecasting, so major snowstorms, hurricanes. And we focus on uh, where our humans can add value to the long-range prediction. We spend very little um, human time looking at the day-ahead forecast, because typically the models are very, very good on a day-ahead forecast. Where our humans are focused a lot of their time on forecasting is really the, the one to two week window, five to 10 to 15 days is where they'll spend a lot of time sort of trying to interpret the models. And, and there, it's more a matter of trying to lay out the various scenarios that could occur. It's not saying the one that will occur. Because we know that you know, one of the things I say is nobody cares about the weather. The other thing I say is that the weather forecasts are always wrong. Um, <laughs> and so you, you're, 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 we know the you, forecasts are wrong. Yeah,
0: so yeah, exactly. But you're agreeing then with the people that harass the meteorologists about always being wrong. <laughs>
1: I, I go on to say what we try to do is understand how wrong we're going
0: to yes, be. Yes, and I think that's a relative statement. I think that, yeah. that, that statement is a very accurate statement because there's no perfect model. That's why we use ensembles, and that's why we look at multiple models. But what you understand about how they're wrong is where the instruction and information is.
1: That's exactly right, and that's where we do leverage uh, our people a lot to talk about what the various scenarios are that could occur. So, for example, if you're looking at a... If you're looking at a seven-day planning horizon as a shipper and you're trying to optimize around your temperature protection costs, um, if you know that there is a chance that it might get really cold, so let's say, you know, let's say about half the ensembles are going with a temperature that would be problematic, but the other half of the ensembles are not. And let's say, you know, the 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 ECMWF is in one direction and the GFS is in another direction. Um, these are instances where the, the customer then, if they understand the probabilities, they can begin to essentially provide a, a return, on, return on cost. So if I'm going to protect everything, right, if I, if I believe that the half the models that are cold enough are what I need to work toward, then I'm just going to go protect it, and I'm willing to spend that money. If, on the other hand, I um, say my inventory levels are good, say I'm perhaps already over budget on my on my protection spend, I might say something to the effect of, well, if I lose a little bit of inventory, it's not a big deal at this point. So, you know, sort of understanding what those probabilities are is really where we spend a lot of time, where our people spend a lot of time in model interpretation and on the communication side. Um, So communication is
0: communication is a big part of what you do then, because you have to convey that risk.
1: Absolutely. So, we, we have the technology, and the technology is what allows us to scale. So, the technology is what allows us to reach, you know, hundreds and hundreds of users at a single client. Um, we can't talk to hundreds of people at a single client. Um, but this, So, the technology is what sort of empowers the level one of, of understanding, okay, there's going to be a problem. The, you know, the, the risk is very high. Then our people will get involved to sort of help understand what the management um, decisions should be, and it's it, it is very much a consultative, um, and and communication is a big part of that consultation. So there is a consultative role here, and that's that's really where we focus our um, our people are focused on that end, and our technology is focused on. You know, we we're currently uh, we're currently working with five million. Unique shipments. Um, a person can't do that, right? That has to be a machine, right? Um, so where we try to plug our people in is where they can where they can add value around that. So it really is a marriage of the technology and the people.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, an important lesson for anyone listening in the weather geeks right now because. You know, the models are out there we have access to the models and all kinds of information and I, I noticed that some young young meteorologists and scholars are just enthusiasts for, just look at the models <laughs> and they t- take the models at face value but uh, there they have to be interpreted you have to understand the strengths and weaknesses of the models you heard heard Stephen mention ensembles for those that are sort of casual listeners, to weather geeks the ensembles are where we take different sort of manifestations of a model run maybe with a slightly different initialization or initial condition of the model, or maybe we take an ensemble of all of the different model solutions uh, with the same initialization and we look at the outcome. So it's important to understand this risk and and probability and uncertainty, and that's ensemble modeling is really kind of where we are as a weather community. Uh, You've mentioned temperatures, extreme temperatures, uh, and I'm I'm getting a sense that that's a key meteorological element of sort of your, your business model, but are there other types of weather that you consider other than extreme temperatures?
1: Absolutely. So, on the weather side, any major, uh, any major extreme event, such as a hurricane or a major winter storm or a major flood event, um, even down to a to a much less frequent degree, like a major severe weather outbreak, anything that stops the flow of traffic, essentially, um, are the types of weather events that we focus on. It is important to note, though, that we also focus on a whole lot of factors that are not weather. Um, so we, we also work with, um, so when you're thinking about predicting uh, the arrival of a particular shipment, you can imagine that weather is one factor in that, but it could be that the trucking company that you choose to use, some trucking companies might have a better on-time delivery rate than others. Um, the, we talk about social and infrastructure hazards. So in an instance where there may be a bridge collapse or something along that's not weather related, um, that stops the flow of traffic. Uh, we find is, uh, goods that are delivered on the weekend may have a different, um, may have a different on time profile than those that are delivered during the week, uh, on holidays might have different on time profiles. Uh, So there are a lot of non-weather variables that are a huge part of what we do as well. The weather is certainly the, has sort of been, was the birthplace. uh, And the weather is still a major factor in what we do. But there are a whole lot of other factors as well. And in many cases, those other factors can be more important because we don't have extreme events every day. Uh, So there are uh, many days in the year where in the, in the, service prediction modeling that we do or the, the on-time delivery modeling that we do where other factors such as the trucking company or the customer or the day of the week or the season of the year are actually um, better predictors of the, the delivery time than the weather is.
0: Just a fascinating discussion with Stephen Bennett, founder of chief and chief operating officer at RiskPulse. We've got a few more questions as we draw to a close. I, I, you mentioned Scripps earlier, which is uh, one of the leading sort of earth sciences and weather and oceanographic uh, organizations in the world. You taught a course there at Scripps on organizational leadership and project management for science professionals. Is that correct? Tell us a little bit about that, because that's I think what we need more of, I mean, many of us went into scientific fields, but what I think you're demonstrating is that the world is not just uh, digits and numbers and equations. Tell us a little bit about that course.
1: Yeah. So this is, this is an area that I'm particularly passionate about. Um, and it is that our, our science institutions are creating awesome scientists. Um, Often those scientists don't have the the other skills that are needed to help their ideas get out into the world. So in the um, in the so I, I still am invited back each summer to teach a course on communication and presentations for um, for scientists. Um, but the course you're talking about was actually a um, and it's really a workshop. The the one that I taught at Scripps a few years ago was really focused on, uh, leadership traits and principles. So how do you, how do you encourage or motivate a team to do something? So getting other people to sort of work with you, um, and communication is a big part of that. So, um, communication was an element of the course, uh, negotiation was an element of the course, uh, and sort of, um, project management, so I think those skills are really kind of core skills for anyone that wants to do something that is bigger than themselves, where you need other people to help. Um, you you need to motivate those people to help and then sort of keep everybody moving in the same direction. And I really feel that communication, There there are definitely people who are born communicators that are just very good naturally at communication. Same thing with leadership. There are people that are born with natural leadership tendencies, but the nice thing about these fields is that the traits that make a good leader can be learned. You don't have to be born a leader in order to be an excellent leader, and that's where I really applaud. Um, I applaud academic programs that offer uh, leadership, project management, communication um, you know, those kind of team, team building, that sort of stuff as part of a core curriculum, because I think folks are, are students that come out with those parts of their education are much more, uh, well-rounded. And, you know, sometimes students get those on their own, you know, they get them through extracurriculars, uh, through sports and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I think in the deep science programs, it's, um, it's good to teach them and, and, uh, the, the time that I spent in creating that course and teaching that course, the the change in students from the beginning to the end was was really really um, good to see.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right because one of the things we're seeing in the weather enterprise whether that be academia, the federal sector, private sector, a lot of the opportunities now are in the private sector for meteorologists. I think this when I'm I'm old enough and you know, we're we're similar kind of talking before we came on uh, coming out of meteorology programs in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, a lot of people want to be forecasters of the weather service or go on T V and those are certainly great, great careers, but the world has changed thirty years later and there are a lot of opportunities like your company and others. And so I think a broader skill set than just understanding the omega equation or the quasi-geostrophic theory, which is sort of if you're listening and have not had a meteorology program, these are things that we learn in our meteorology degrees. Uh, last question, and we don't, we don't have a lot of time, what's the future of your company? What, where, where are you headed and what, what are the big things that you hope to see happen over the next zero to five years?
1: So I, I think for us it's it's going to be – becoming more of a standard in the total supply chain. So noting that weather is part of the equation, but it's in many cases only a small part of the equation and um, being part of the revolution that's going on in supply chain where it's simply, you know, if we do our job well, and I'm talking about my company, but I'm also talking about all of the other companies in our space and and this the supply chain is undergoing a, a revolution right now through technology, when we are successful as a community in this space, there will no longer be an excuse of saying, well, the shipment didn't show up because there was a hurricane and, you know, we didn't, it, that's just, it's force majeure. It's, uh, it's an act of nature. Um, and so therefore it just is what it is. Um, you know, I think as we, or, or you know, fully understanding how to optimize around choosing the right carrier partner um, because they tend to work better in certain parts of the country than others and, you know, having the data to understand that. So as a shipper, choosing the right trucking companies to work with to get your goods there on time, even in adverse conditions. So I think, you know, we, we will be a, a center point of that. Um, you know, we will be part of that as the entire community uh, grows in that direction.
0: And there you have it. I hope the Weather Geeks listeners have enjoyed this conversation with Stephen Bennett, founder and chief operating officer at Risk Pulse. I know I certainly learned some things that I didn't know today. So thank you for the knowledge that you have imparted. Are you on Twitter or social media or just on websites and LinkedIn at this point?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is probably my primary social media. Um, yeah. just so to, it's in-
0: Yeah, And you can, they can find your company on a website as well, I imagine.
1: That's right. Just riskpulse.com. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn as uh, Stephen.Bennett.
0: Well, that's where we have to end it. Stephen, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.